This episode of World Changing Women is brought to you by Kate Spade, New York, and their On Purpose initiative. Stay tuned after the episode to hear from Taryn Bird, who's the Director of Social Impact, about their incredible work in Rwanda, providing full-time jobs to women and men in underserved communities. They've been a huge supporter of the World Changing Women platform here at Conscious Company Media, and we're so grateful to have them as a partner. I'm Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media, and welcome to World Changing Women. Each week, we interview some of the most badass female founders in the world to get their insights on how they've built game-changing companies that actually have a positive impact on the world. Our hope here is to inspire and help people of all backgrounds who feel like starting a business or chasing their dream is out of their reach to reconsider. We'll hear the good, the bad, and sometimes even the ugly of what it takes to start and build something incredible. And we hope that every episode will leave you inspired, hopeful, and with practical tips that will help you along your journey. Welcome to World Changing Women. It is so empowering when a group of women all work together at the same time to raise money because we do tend to isolate ourselves. If you have a business idea, chances are you're going to need money. And while it's a necessity, money can be a major source of anxiety. There's fears about getting money. And also once you have it, there's fears about how you'll spend it. Jenny Casson has helped entrepreneurs face their funding fears and raise millions of dollars for their businesses. She spent nearly two decades as an attorney and advisor for mission-driven businesses, primarily focusing on empowering women entrepreneurs to raise money with confidence and also on their own terms. In this episode, we'll hear Jenny's journey from community development work to starting her own consulting practice. And of course, we'll also hear some of her best tips for raising money. I just kind of want to hear a little bit of a background of how did you get to where you are today? Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And I do love talking about my story because I kind of got into this work in a very roundabout way. Um, I went to law school and the first job I had out of law school was at a nonprofit doing community development work. Um, And so I just, I was really, really passionate about helping to alleviate the um, economic inequality in our country. So I, I found a job at this nonprofit in Oakland. Um, And I helped to do a lot of different community development projects. And one of my jobs was to work with the small local businesses in this community to support them and try to help them, you know, be more successful so that they could create more jobs and bring more wealth into the community. And in doing that, I just got really, really passionate about helping small businesses. And also I realized how big of a challenge that many, many small businesses face. I mean, the playing field is so not level for small businesses. They have so much coming at them, so many, you know, regulations they have to comply with and, um, you know, crazy stuff going on every day. And they are barely making it a lot of the time. A lot of the people I was working with were immigrants. So they had, you know, English wasn't their first language, so they couldn't even understand what the requirements were. So I just became really passionate about helping small businesses because I feel like they are often the unsung heroes of many, many communities. Um, They create a lot of innovation and jobs and just community fabric, you know, and they, unlike the big giant chain stores and big multinational businesses, you know, they create that character and, um, 
you know, make every place unique instead of every place the same, as unfortunately a lot of chain stores do. Um, so anyway, I did that work at that nonprofit for 11 years. And I really, really loved it. Um, but there was a change in leadership at one point. So I started kind of looking around for something else. And I happened to meet a, I was introduced to a lawyer who did securities law. And I didn't really even know what securities law was, but I found out it's the law that governs how businesses can raise money from investors. And I was really interested in that. I thought, oh my gosh, you know, that if I could help businesses raise money from investors, that would solve a lot of their problems. If they actually had money, they could, you know, address some of these challenges that they're facing. And maybe we could move some of the investment dollars out of Wall Street and into Main Street. But in some ways, I was very naive because I knew very little about the world of finance. I knew nothing about venture capital. I knew nothing about, you know, the way Silicon Valley businesses are funded. Um, all I knew is, wow, I love the idea of helping small businesses get money, you know? So I, I worked with that lawyer. We co-founded a law firm and consulting firm together. Um, and I ended up staying with that business for nine years. And I learned everything possible about all of the different, basically all of the laws governing how you can raise money. So the regulatory issues, and then also the different ways you can structure investments. And um, and I, I did that for nine years. And then about three years ago, I, I, did, I, I went ahead and left that business and went out on my own um, because I really wanted to focus on helping women entrepreneurs raise money. And it wasn't that my business partner wasn't interested in that, but he didn't have the same level of enthusiasm <laughs> about it that I did. So I left, went out on my own. And for a little over three years now, I've been just focusing on, I help all businesses raise money, but I especially love to focus on helping women entrepreneurs raise money using really creative strategies that allow them to be true to who they are and, you know, not sell out their values and not have to pretend to be something they're not. Mm, I just, I love it. There's, you are now a female entrepreneur who has started her own business that is helping predominantly other female entrepreneurs mm -hmm. start their own business. Um, it's just such a virtuous cycle. Um, <laughs> and so I, I do want to talk about that moment when you decided to leave this kind of thriving practice that you had with this business partner of yours and venture out on your own. And I mean, so often we get in these places of comfort zones where we kind of, we've been doing something in your case for nine years and we're good at it and we're well-respected in the community for doing it. And then you decided to go ahead and venture out and start something on your own. What gave you the courage to take that leap and start your own company? Yes. Well, it. I, to be honest with you, I didn't really want to leave. Um, it just happened that my business partner and I just really suddenly started to not see eye to eye at all. And we came to an impasse where I just felt like I had no choice but to leave. I didn't really want to. <laughs> But it just became kind of unworkable for me. And I think he probably felt the same way. So I kind of, it happened very suddenly. I was not expecting it. it one day I was working there, the next day I wasn't. Um, and it was scary, but I'm so glad it happened because some sadly, a lot of us are too scared to take that leap and we have to be forced out of the nest. <laughs> mm. And that's what happened to me. And I, you know, it's been, it was hard at first, you know, I was like, what am I doing now? Oh my God, I'm on my own. But it, you know, little by little, I, 
I was able to really start pursuing the things that I felt most passionate about. And um, it's been amazing. And it's, you know, one of those moments in your life where in the moment it feels absolutely terrifying and the floor is falling out from underneath you. And then when you look back on it, it's not that it was happening to you. It was that it was happening for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's fantastic. Um, so I'm curious, you know, three years ago, you found yourself in this place where you're kind of unexpectedly starting your own practice. Um, I'm curious, what were some of the very first steps that you took once you decided to actually start your own business? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, luckily, I had already been in a coaching program that had taught me some things about um creating and offering group programs, um, which is kind of unusual for a lawyer. Um, but I had become convinced that um, bringing women together into groups what, to help them raise money was a really powerful thing. You know, I hadn't really done it yet. I, we, I had worked with some co-ed groups, but um, just the whole idea of helping a group of people go through the process together of raising money. Of course, they still get would get one-on-one legal services, but um, the, the idea that we, there were certain things that would be better done in a group. So I, so the very first thing I did was I said, okay, I'm going to launch a whole new group program for women entrepreneurs about raising money. And I kind of created this online course and, you know, created some materials and videos and had, you know, group coaching calls. And, you know, it was terrifying at first. Cause I, you know, I, I, I hadn't, I didn't have a lot of experience doing that kind of thing. I actually ended up getting a coaching certification because I felt like, who am I to be a coach? I'm a lawyer. I'm not a coach, but, um, you know, a little, it was one of those things where you just have to do it and just accept that the first few times, you know, the beginning is going to be a little awkward and a little uncomfortable, but the more I did it, the more I, the belief that I had about doing these things in groups became validated that it is so empowering when a group of women all work together at the same time to raise money because we do tend to isolate ourselves and um, kind of uh, we can spiral down and mentally (laughs) in terms of the things that go through our heads you know and so yeah so that's what I've been doing ever since so a lot of the services I provide now are in groups we still have um, the one-on-one legal services, but it comes in the context of a group program. And so I just kind of started doing it and, fi- you know, desperately calling and trying to find people that were willing to sign up for my program. And I did the first one, then I did the second one. And I'm actually now on the ninth group <laughs> of that same thing that I started. Um, and I do have some other clients that do other things as well, but that's really the core of my business is group programs for entrepreneurs raising money. Yeah. And, and you kind of mentioned it there, but this, this, you know, nagging voice that so many of us female entrepreneurs have that we can't do something. And then we often women find power in groups. Um, and I, I had the just honor and privilege of coming and talking to one of your groups at one time about what it's like to raise money and and any advice that I had for them. And I'm just curious for you, um, just that group dynamic, how powerful has that been? And do you find that these women are starting to believe in themselves more as a result of actually raising money in tandem with other women who are out there raising money? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so many things about it that just makes such a big difference. I mean, um, 
it's just, I don't think it's healthy to try to do these things completely on your own. It's, it's raising money can be a really intense process. It brings up a lot of core issues about your money beliefs and your beliefs about your self-worth and, um, and I do, I, you know, as much as I do hate to generalize about the genders, you know, I do see very similar things coming up for all the women that I, almost every woman I talk to, I hear very similar fears and beliefs come up as they're thinking about raising money. And so when you're in a group and by the way, I've raised money myself four times and I've had those same things too, you know? So when you can kind of say, Hey, I feel that way too. It kind of makes you realize like, Oh, this is just kind of normal. This is just a thought that comes up for all of us. We don't have to believe that it's true, you know? And then you see these other women and we tend to always see how amazing the other women are that are around us and we don't see it in ourselves, but you're surrounded by these other women who you're like, these women are so amazing and they're thinking that too wow you know it it must be wrong you know if we're all thinking that it's crazy so um also another thing that I never really realized would be such an important piece of it is that the women promote each other because what we what I'm sure you've noticed is like women are so great about telling everyone how great their friends are (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we love our friends so much. And so we, we're always telling each other like, oh, you've got to invest in her. She's so amazing. You know, so we end up promoting each other. Like if you talk to an investor and it's not a good fit, you'll probably tell them about your buddy who's doing something that is a good fit. Or if you're at an event and you meet someone and you, you know, maybe your buddy is there. Oh, you should meet her. She's so amazing. You know, so that really helps too, because you shouldn't be the only one who's telling investors about the fact that you're raising money. You should have an army of, of promoters out there telling everyone they know, hey, my buddy who's really awesome is raising money. You've got to talk to her. <laughs> I love that. Um, I, I remember at our, our World Changing Women Summit in February, we had Kat Taylor, um, who, you know, is kind of reinventing the banking system. She's like this idol that I had and she sat on stage and she talked about kind of this element of not feeling like she was good enough to do this work. Mm -hmm. And when you mention women kind of having, you know, uh, trying not to generalize, but like hearing a lot of women saying the same things and, and really finding some comfort in that when you see someone who's at the upper echelons, like Kat Taylor is saying, I, you know, some days I question if I'm worthy enough Mm -hmm. to do this work. Um, So I'm curious if you can speak to some of those common things that you're hearing women say when they come in the door um, in terms of their fear around raising capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got to write down a top 10 list of the things I hear. because I, <laughs> I hear the same things over and over. Um, one thing I hear a lot is um, I'm afraid that once I have the money, I won't use it responsibly let some variation on that. Um, so it's like a fear around having the money. Like, so there's all kinds of fears around getting the money and we can talk about that. But one thing I've noticed recently as I've been listening more and more is, well, what if I mess up and, and spend the money wrong and, and then, you know, things don't work out. So that's been really interesting because, um, if you kind of don't trust yourself to steward that money that you're raising from investors, that's going to be a a block that's going to keep you from getting the money because there's a part of you that almost doesn't want to have it because you don't trust yourself to have it. Um, 
So that's been an interesting one. And what I always, a lot of what comes up is that fear around, will I be a good enough steward of the money? What if I lose all the money? Um, you know, the, a lot of women seem to feel like if I can't a hundred percent guarantee that my investors will get their money back plus a return that they have, you know, that there's, they cannot raise money unless they can a hundred percent promise that. And so I'm always reminding them that there is absolutely no investment that is a hundred percent certain. Um, and that investors know that when they make an investment, there's a risk, but the fact that you're so worried about that is exactly what makes them want to invest in you because they can feel how concerned you are about, wanting to be a good steward of their money. So it's, I always love to turn around these fears and make them realize like that, that fear that you have, it's actually a really good thing and really attractive to investors, you know? Um, gosh, what else? Um, the idea of having to be accountable to more people because, um, kind of like when we bring on employees to our business, a lot of fears can come up because it's like, oh my God, it's more than just me now, you know? I have to take care of all these other people. And, you know, what if I fail? You know, what if I let them down? So a lot of that comes up. And again, I think I, I tell people, because I've raised money a few times and I know the difference between having investors and not having investors. And I actually think it's, it feels really good to have investors because it, 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 it's kind of hard for me to put into words what it feels like. It's not like, some, you know, it's not like pressure necessarily. It's more just like you have this group of people that you know are cheering for you, that want you to be successful, that support you. And it's motivating in a good way, like not in a negative way. And of course, they're there to, to support you. If you call on them, they can be there to support you, um, you know, and provide advice or resources or ideas. So, those are just a couple I can think of. I could probably go on and on about all the different things I hear from women, but um, it is amazing how similar the things are that I hear over and over, all the objections of why they can't raise money. Or another one is, oh, I just can't ask. I'm just not good at asking. I just can't do that. <laughs> and then to that one, I always say, well, were you born knowing how to ride a bicycle? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. It's a little hard right now. You, you know, you've never done it before, but that doesn't mean you don't do it. You just, you do it. You accept it's not going to be perfect and you keep doing it and it'll get more comfortable, you know? Hmm. So yeah, those are a few. <laughs> oh, that's really helpful. Um, so I, I'm sure that this kind of is a case by case basis, but I was just curious around, you know, so an entrepreneur comes in to your company and is looking to raise money. What are some of the very first things that, you do in terms of what, what questions are you asking or what advice are you giving them, you know, right when they come in the door? Yeah, well, I do have kind of, I, because I've done this now for 12 years, helping people raise money, um, use, and I, I don't have a formula at all. Um, I like to keep it really, really open-ended so that we can customize it to each particular situation. But I do have a set of six, you know, steps to the process of thinking through how to raise money. Um, and so, you know, the first is really thinking about what are your goals and values for your business? Um, instead of just going out and immediately trying to find money, 
thinking about, you know, really given what you want to happen with your business in a perfect world, what type of investment would really fit that? So, for example, um, a lot of people go out and look for investors who their model of investing requires that you sell the company grow as quickly as possible and then sell the company to some kind of larger acquirer. And, but a lot of my clients and a lot of business owners in general, they don't really want to build the business for the purpose of selling it as quickly as possible. It's, and I do, you know, I have some clients that say I never want to sell my business. And then some clients that say I may want to sell my business someday, but I don't want to have to focus for the next five years on doing everything I can to ensure that my business sold to some big multinational corporation. That's just not, that doesn't excite me at all, you know? Um, And so you have to go out and find investors who are not going to be pushing you to do that, who will be happy that you, who will be happy with your plans for your, the future of your business. So that's part of the step one, you know, just kind of getting really clear on what you want for your business so that you can make sure that you bring on investors in a way that fits that. And then step two is thinking about who your ideal investors might be. And just like you might do for your customers, just getting more clear on who to focus on because you can waste a lot of time focusing on the wrong investors if you don't do that. Step three is figuring out what to offer them. And that's where you design the actual instrument that they're investing in. And that there's many, many different, I mean, there's really an infinite number of ways that investors can be compensated. So you want to really think that through carefully. Step four is doing the legal compliance piece, because when you do offer an investment opportunity, there's always a legal compliance piece. That's how securities law works. So you just have to make sure you choose the legal compliance um, strategy that fits your particular goals. Um, Step five is the enrollment conversations. You know, how do you actually go out and have those conversations with investors? What do you show them? And I always say conversations. I never say pitch. I'm not a fan of the word pitch. (laughs) I think conversations work way better when it comes to finding investors that are a really good fit. And then step six is kind of the mindset piece. You know, how do you deal with those blocks that come up. And I just, I see it over and over so many women who have a lot of things in place that they could successfully raise money. They just don't do it because so many kind of limiting beliefs come up or they somehow get really busy doing other things because they just don't want to go out and and ask. So we work a lot on that piece too. Hmm. So so one piece that I do want to dig in a little bit into is kind of this this funding instrument side. Um, and this is one area where you uh, probably have more expertise than anyone in the country uh, around raising capital in unique ways. Um, and I think a lot of people have the narrative that, you know, you start off with your friends and family round, and then you do an angel round, and then you kind of grow out from there. But you've actually pioneered some some fundamental ways to raise capital and you know of all these unique instruments. Um, And I was just hoping that you could speak a little bit to kind of what other things should entrepreneurs be considering in in addition to an angel round. Um, I I mean, obviously, this is case by case, but I'm just curious if you could speak to a little bit in terms of alternate funding mechanisms. Yeah, well, I just kind of think of it as... um, it's not necessarily that you shouldn't be considering an angel round um, and you shouldn't be considering a friends and family round. But the way I like to think of it is 
you should be the one that designs what you offer to investors and you should decide who your ideal investors are. So I, I strongly believe that you as the business owner know better than anyone what what type of relationship you should have with investors, what type of promises that you should make to them. You know, is it realistic to promise, um, you know, maybe an annual 5% dividend? Is it realistic to promise uh, an annual dividend, but not for the first seven years because you know you're not going to break even? You know, all these things are things you know better than anyone. And you need to take the time to think through exactly how do I want to compensate investors in a way that that will allow me to stay true to what to my vision for the future of my business. So you should never let an investor hand you a term sheet <laughs> because they don't know what you know about, you know, that you should not have a cookie cutter type of investment. And sadly, you know, that's what, mo you know, that's kind of what the whole um, Silicon Valley model of investing tends to be. There's these very cookie cutter term sheets and they're all designed for a business that is on a very high growth path with the expectation of getting sold. So if you're a high growth tech company, and you want to get sold to Google, or maybe you know you want to, you're some kind of a company with the goal of getting sold to a big company as quickly as possible. That might fit for you, but only 0.1% of businesses actually do that type of funding. So, um, so chances are there's a very good chance that that's not a good fit for you. So you should design what it is you're offering. And then what I always say is like your lawyer is really just there to put it onto paper in a legal document, your wishes, you know, and, and of course, you know, I advise my client, like I'll say, well, are you sure you want to offer that? The investor might be a little turned off by that, you know, so it's not like I'll just say whatever you want, we'll do it. You know, I give advice on what's likely to be attractive, but I do believe that, that you should, um, design something that fits your goals for your business. And then, you know, then go out and find the investors that will like that. And there are investors out there. You probably won't be going to the typical, you know, angel group if you're offering something different from, you know, the venture capital style offering. But there's a lot of other investors out there that will probably be perfectly thrilled with what you're offering. And I have so many examples of that. You know, no one can tell me, you know, like I just raised 1.1 million recently for a an eight year debt revenue based debt offering with a minimum of a 2.5 percent annual return, averaged out over eight years. You know, <laughs> if I could do that, <laughs> and I have millions of other examples, you know, of people offering things that a, a typical venture capitalist or angel would probably laugh at. You know, but so what? They're a tiny percentage of the total number, you know, investors out there. So design what you want, then find those investors that want to be part of that. And and one other element that I was hoping that you could really speak to is crowdfunding. Um, I'm probably going to misspeak here, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you were kind of instrumental in terms of the crowdfunding provision that's in the Jobs Act, and you like literally are one of the people who have created this law. And so I was hoping that you could speak a little bit to how crowdfunding is emerging and kind of letting in unaccredited investors and um, how you're seeing that shape people's ability to raise capital. Yeah, so it has always been possible to raise money from everybody 
you know, there was this myth that somehow that wasn't possible and that was wrong. But to be able to raise money from everybody, like I always tell people, you know, in 1984, Ben and Jerry's raised money from every the entire population of uh, they offered an investment opportunity to the entire population of Vermont the minimum investment was $126 they publicly advertised it so that was legal you know even back in 1984 but um it you did have to jump through quite a few hoops to be able to do that to do the legal compliance to make it legal to do that and so i was part of a nonprofit called sustainable economies law center and we wrote a letter to the securities and exchange commission and said could you guys create a new regulation that would make it easier for people to crowdfund investments um and we we made a really simple proposal we just said what if you said that as long as no one invested more than $100, that there would be no regulations on that. And the SEC ignored us, but the proposal started to go viral and people started to hear about it and it became incredibly popular. The, it, the word got out to, the, to Congress and to the president. And so they ended up adopting this law called the Jobs Act of 2012, which actually did contain um, provisions that made it much, much easier to crowdfund investments. And that's Title III of the Jobs Act. And lucky for us, they didn't limit it to $100 per person, <laughs> even though that was what we had originally proposed. It's much more generous than that. Um, the amount you can invest depends on your net worth, the lower of your net worth and annual income, but it's... Um, it's a minimum of anyone can invest 2000 and then it goes up from there. Um, and then, and people can raise up to right now it's a million 70,000. It gets adjusted for inflation. And even though the law passed in 2012, it didn't go into effect until 2016. It took four years to do the regulatory process of actually allowing it to go into effect. So it's only been around for two years. And I think things are going pretty well. I mean, I've used it myself. I've had clients use it. Um, you know, it's not taking off, I think, the way some people thought it would, but I think it will. You know, it's it's a, it's a fairly easy thing to do to be able to raise up to a million dollars. Anyone in the whole country can invest. You can get a, a campaign going in a few weeks. It's fairly easy compared to what we used to have to do when we did the state by state um, filings. So yeah, and I actually just recently became the co-founder of a new platform called Crowdfund Main Street. And the founder is a woman who's really, really passionate about supporting community-based businesses that are, you know, not, you know, kind of those kind, those 99% nine, 99.9% .9 of businesses that are more, um, you know, mom and pop style businesses, maybe not necessarily in the Bay Area or in New York, <laughs> like the ones all over the country that are just trying to like create awesome businesses in their own communities, you know, and some of them do, you know, I'm not saying they won't all, you know, that they'll all stay small. Some of them will grow big, but their, their number one goal is to, you know, serve their communities, serve, you know, give back to the, to the world. Um, and so this platform is designed for those kinds of businesses. So it's crowdfund main street. Yes. Crowdfundmainstreet.com. And we, right now we have five offerings up on the platform. They've only been up there for a couple weeks and they're all women owned businesses, all mission driven. Um, two of them are worker cooperatives. Three of them are owned by women of color. It's just, it's super awesome. <laughs> and you can invest for as little as I believe $500. 
That's fantastic. Um, so, you know, taking into account all of this experience that you have, um, I'm wondering if you have the ability to kind of distill your lessons down into maybe two to three of your top pieces of advice for business leaders. And that doesn't necessarily have to be around capital raising, um, but it could be. Um, but just kind of as, as business leaders are going through their day-to-day of running their businesses, what have you learned that you wish you could impart on these incredible people running businesses? Yeah, well, one thing around capital raising, I would say, is to to really try it, you know, so many business owners, especially women, I, I, I say they're stuck in the bootstrap trap where you just, you just don't have the resources to run your business in a way that's going to really work. And so you keep struggling and struggling and hoping that somehow you're going to make it and eventually you're going to earn enough revenue to you know, to be able to pay yourself a decent salary or hire a bookkeeper. And it really is a trap because unless you have the resources you need to, you know, take your business to that next level, it's super hard to ever grow it to the point where, you know, it's kind of this uh, circular problem. (laughs) So, and most businesses solve that problem by raising money. So I would say definitely don't count yourself out of raising money. It might sound far-fetched for you, but I honestly believe just about every business can raise money. All you need to do is have a clearer sense of how if you raise some money, it would lead to your business being more successful. And then eventually you could start to include the investors in that, you know, that extra profit that you'll make because of the money you invested up front. So for example, you know, maybe you raise $100,000 to do a really amazing marketing campaign that's going to grow your business. And then you'll be able to, and then you'll be, maybe you'll be able to, you know, have, get some help. So you don't have to be doing all the marketing yourself. So you'll be able to serve more clients and then you'll have more revenue and you'll have more profit. And lo and behold, your investors can share in that along the way. So, um, so don't count yourself out no matter what kind of business you are. Um, it is possible. And then, um, and, the, and it's also a huge growth experience. You know, the first time I did it, I was so terrified. I, I raised money for my own business for the first time, I think back in 2010, maybe. And I was terrified. It was really hard to ask, but I just kept doing it and doing it and making a mess of it and, do you know, getting back up on the horse and doing it and doing it and doing it. And eventually it just got easier, you know, and now I've done it four times. I've raised over 1.5 million different businesses that I've been involved with. And um, I actually really enjoy it now. It's very empowering. I feel like it caused me to grow a lot in my confidence and my willingness to kind of get outside my comfort zone. So that's one thing. Um, And then, yeah, I guess kind of related to that more generally is just being willing to just take, make a move, even though it's not going to be perfect, um, which I think so many of us women are, you know, again, to generalize based on all my conversations with women, so many of us are, are real perfectionists and we want, we want, we don't want to put our stuff out there unless we think it's perfect. And that's, there is no such thing as perfection. (laughs) So I think the more you can just convince yourself to get out there with something that's good enough, and, you know, get, have the courage to get out there with something that's imperfect. And as you do that, 
little by little, you're, you will start to grow your confidence and you kind of, you can't wait for the confidence to, before you go out and do stuff, you have to kind of do it without the confidence and just know that eventually it will come. It'll catch up. So speaking of, of confidence, um, I just learned at the beginning of this call that, that you're running for city council. Um, So you're running for city council. It sounds like you have your own business. You just co-founded a crowdfunding platform. And I am just wondering from your perspective, what practices do you have to keep yourself sane right now with Mm -hmm. everything that you've got going on in your life? Yeah. And I have to say, like, if I hadn't been an entrepreneur and raised money, I don't think I ever would have had the guts to run for city council. So it's so like, I think a lot of us as women entrepreneurs, we don't realize how hard it is what we're doing every day. Like we kind of get used to it and just think it's normal. And then we realize like, oh my God, I've been doing really hard things now for a while, like dealing with fears and doubts. And, you know, it really, it really helps you in so many areas of your life. So just, you know, appreciate that. (laughs) But um, yeah, and then I guess the other thing is to just really focus on getting help. You know, if I could never have done it if I hadn't um, had a team, and it took me a long time to even imagine how I could have a team, how I could afford a team. And then even when I could afford a team, how do I find the right people? And I really, I never thought I'd be able to do it. Actually, that's an area that I just always felt like, oh, Jenny, you're just terrible at that. You're so bad at team. You're so bad at HR stuff. You'll never find people. And then I just kept, you know, kept looking, kept trying, not giving up. And eventually I now have an amazing team. And, you know, it is a little scary having a team because you have to make payroll, (laughs) but it is so worth it. So I'd say, you know, even if you feel like that's an area of challenge for you and you've had bad experiences where you've hired the wrong person and, you know, don't give up. You can't. If I can do it, anyone can do it. (laughs) I am the worst. I was the worst at having a good team. And, you know, I've been sued by employee. Oh, I've had it. I've had every bad experience you can imagine with employees. (laughs) Well, I'm glad. I'm so happy to hear you have such a solid team around you now. Yes, it took like many, many years. <laughs> um, kind of building on building teams and great cultures and, and being a leader of an organization. I'm curious if, if you have any kind of mantra that you live by on a day to day or if you have just had an incredible piece of advice that someone else has given you that you consistently come back to. Gosh, this again is not my area of expertise in terms of like, you know, having being a great HR person, but I think I just, um, you know, it's just a matter of really finding the right people and then letting them do their thing, you know, how you find those people. I have no idea. It's a luck. It's putting that great energy out there. And I guess also, you know, when you really are doing the thing that you love and that you're so passionate about, it is contagious. I mean, my team, we're all so excited about what we're doing, you know, helping women entrepreneurs grow their businesses. And um, so if you have that passion for what you're doing, it will attract amazing people. Um, and inspire them to work hard for you. Um, so I think probably the best thing you can do for your business is just really make sure that you're 
as much as possible, you're always doing that thing in your business that most inspires you, that feels like this is what you were put on earth to do. The more you can get onto that dime <laughs> of doing that thing that is just so your gift, you know, that you just love doing that lights you up. A lot of things follow from that. Money follows from that. People follow from that. And it's not always easy because you get so overwhelmed dealing with day-to-day -day stuff. Sometimes you forget, you know, what is that thing that that I was put here on earth to do, but just keep trying to go back to that as much as you can because it gives you energy. It attracts resources to you. And, you know, you feel amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't feel exhausted and burnt out like so many of us can and when we are a small business owner. Absolutely. Um, and our final question here as we kind of wrap up our time together, I'm curious for you, what is giving you hope for the future? Mm. Well, you know, I would never have thought to run for office if I hadn't seen all these amazing women <laughs> stepping up, you know, it just <laughs> after the women's march and just all those stories of women who are like, oh my God, I never thought I would run for office, but this is ridiculous. This jerk cannot stay in <laughs> office. I have to run against him, you know. I just, seeing that just made, inspired me so much, you know, not just to run for office myself, but also to just keep working on helping women grow in every possible way, whether it's in business or politics or just being more confident and not feeling like they have to be someone they're not. You know, I really feel like the future is female <laughs> and we have to speed that along because we need some female energy right now in our world more than we have now so and I'm seeing it all the time like I'm just seeing so many women stepping up and you know being perfectly imperfect and saying you know yeah I, I may not look like your typical you know political candidate but damn it I'm gonna do it anyway a huge thanks this week goes out to Jenny Casson and her entire team. This episode of World Changing Women is brought to you by Kate Spade, New York, and their On Purpose initiative. Stay tuned to hear from Taryn Bird, who's the director of Social Impact, about their incredible work in Rwanda, providing full-time jobs to women and men in underserved communities. And I am joined today by the wonderful Taryn Bird. Taryn, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about Kate Spade on purpose, and specifically, what are the main goals of the program? So a little bit about On Purpose. On Purpose is our social enterprise initiative here at Kate Spade, New York, that is committed to empowering women. And about six years ago, we re-looked at how we were doing our women's empowerment work and decided to embark on a social enterprise approach and piloted this work in Rwanda. So with On Purpose, we set out to build to finance and to source from for-profit social enterprise suppliers that we then manufacture a line of handbags that sell in our stores globally. Through On Purpose, we are financing these manufacturing partners that then in turn employ women from the local community who have access to full-time employment in a suite of empowerment services. So you can actually go into our stores in the United States, in the UK, in Asia, and you can find our bags there uh, that we manufacture in Rwanda. We love this line, this collection of products so much 
something that we've really intentionally done with On Purpose and that we really learned from a previous program that we had in place before On Purpose existed was this line of handbags that we manufacture in Rwanda is fully integrated into our assortment. So from a customer perspective, she could walk in and she'll see us using the same fabrics, the same colorways on our On Purpose collection as what's used in the rest of our assortment. So we're making high quality, Kate Spade, New York quality handbags in Rwanda and providing full-time employment to the women and men. There's a few men that work at the On Purpose Supplier, access to full-time employment through making those handbags. We're going to be turning five years old customer facing this year, and we feel super, super proud of what we've accomplished in partnership with our Rwandan colleagues and are excited for the, the growth that's ahead. I mean, Darren, this this work just sounds incredible. And what I'm curious for you, I know that you're steeped in this, you're really leading this program. What has been the best moment so far doing this work or one of the best moments if you can't narrow it down to just one? So I think I've learned a lot about myself through doing this work. You know, I got into women's empowerment not thinking that I needed to do this work for myself. And I think a lot of us that work in purpose-driven or social impact type roles, you know, we have a passion for why we're there. We have a reason why we want to do the work that we're doing. And for me, the empowerment of women was something that I deeply connected with. I kind of thought I had to go the public service route or the nonprofit route. And when I realized that I could go into fashion and I could do this work very scalably, that was like so incredibly exciting to me. What I've started to learn, especially through doing this work directly, you know, one of the things that I've admired so much about the way that Kate Spade New York approached this project and this initiative was that we were going direct. We were not going to be using an intermediary organization to manage our in-country Rwandan-based part of this project and program. Me and my team are corresponding with our Rwandan colleagues directly. We're doing capacity developments. But I don't think we talk enough about what we get back. And for me personally, working in Rwanda has been a incredibly educational but filling experience. And I say that in a sense that we talk a lot about at Kate Spade, New York, about being the heroine of your own story. It's actually our, our brand promise. And in the fashion industry, we've historically focused on the economic empowerment of women. And what we've done with On Purpose is we've not only focused on the economic empowerment, but the emotional and psychological empowerment that is equally as important. I've gone through a lot in my personal life over the course of the last two years. And what I've learned from these women that we've been working to empower with full-time employment, with access to educational programs is what resiliency looks like and how that shows up in the smallest of ways in your everyday life. For me, actually learning more about these ladies that are making our handbag products, what their stories are, you know, how they are showing up every day to work for their families. It's so inspiring because when you unpack what they've been through, what they've gone through and how they're rising, how they are using their story to become a place of strength and courage. That has been the single most important part of doing this women's empowerment work at Kate Spade, New York, that I have taken away um, and realized that I needed to start doing that work for myself. So yes, while here at Through On Purpose, 
we are incredibly intentional and purposeful about providing full-time employment for women because of the ripple effect that's going to have in her community, but also recognizing that we have a lot to learn from these ladies that we're working with. Emotional empowerment, resiliency, courage. These are all things that I've learned from my Rwandan colleagues that I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful for. Thanks so much to Taryn for the great work that you're leading over at Kate Spade. To learn more about the initiative or see the On Purpose collection, visit katespade.com. That's katespade.com. Thanks so much for listening. The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media and is produced by StoryPop Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you tell a friend about the show. And be sure to subscribe to get the latest episode. Thanks so much for listening. A Story Pop Media Production.